HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, it is Monday, and that means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, continuing our political theme for the year 2016, um, I have secured... once again, a fantastic interview, um, and that is with Congressman, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio. Um, in case you're not familiar with the congressman, he is now serving his seventh term. He is a member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, which controls the expenditure of money by the federal government. It doesn't get more powerful than that. Uh, Ryan is also a member of the House Budget Committee, which has oversight over the federal budget process. He is co-chairman of the Congressional Manufacturing Caucus and remains a leader in the the fight to strengthen America's manufacturing base and reform U.S. trade policies. Boy, this is all such grist to my mill here on What Doesn't Kill You. And not only are those some of his many accomplishments, but he is also an author. And so to kick off the interview, um, first of all, welcome, Congressman Ryan. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Great to be with you. A lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Okay, great. I hope you got a chance to look at the outline because we really cover a lot of ground. Um, but I wanted to talk first about the fact that you had actually written a book called The Real Food Revolution. Tell us about that. Well, it's about trying to reform the food system. You know, we're, we're a, a very unhealthy country at this point. We're yes. a sick country. It's, you know, it has its effects with how we perform our own energy levels. I think our academics, our creativity it's having a huge effect and it's also having a long-term effect on our budget um, for the united states our two largest federal programs are the medicaid program which provide health care for our poor citizens and medicare which provides health care for our senior citizens and that makes up about forty percent of the federal budget so if you if you if you look at the trajectory of our health, we have about half the country by 2020 is going to have either diabetes or pre-diabetes. Wow. So the, the book is really about 
how that will, that uh, diabetes issue, heart disease, and all the rest, will sink our federal budget. It will take away from our ability to invest into renewable energy or education or research, roads and bridges, all the kind of things that built our society. We won't have any money for any of that because it will all be eaten up you know, by the, the, by the time, uh, in, you know, 10 or 15 years when half the country have, has diabetes. And really what I try to do is shift the discussion to say, why is it like this? And the reason it's like this is because the federal government collects tax dollars and then subsidizes or provides money for farmers to grow certain crops, big industrial size, right. in many instances, crops that are wheat, soy, and corn primarily. Those don't go into corn on the cob that you eat. That's about 1% of corn, for example. Most of that goes to feed for cattle. The wheat and soy get highly processed and converted into soy oil or wheat oil, and it makes its way into these highly processed foods. For example, the 5 for 5 at McDonald's is a really good example. You think, how could I get five hamburgers for five bucks? Yeah. You know, how, how does that happen? Well, the wheat in the, in the, in the burger... And the bun is subsidized. Other products that are in the bun are subsidized. The feed for the the, the cattle, uh, the corn, that's highly subsidized by your tax dollars. Yep. So that's artificially cheap. So here we have all this artificially cheap food that's highly processed, making us sick, and it's cheap because the taxpayer is doing this, and then the taxpayer pays for us when we get sick. So the whole the whole thing is insane. And uh, the real food revolution is about how we need to switch it on the front end and subsidize fresh fruits and vegetables, and that will drive down the health care costs in the long run and put us in a good place as a country. Uh, let me ask you this, Congressman, why are you the only one who's talking about this? I have yet to hear one other member of Congress, be it from the House of Representatives or be it from the Senate, who is really addressing these issues around subsidizing uh, corn, soy, etc., for the benefit of essentially the cattle industry um, and or the livestock industry as a whole, and that this is all part and parcel of what is contributing to America's poor health outcome. Why are you the only one? Are you are is there are there any other, anybody else that I could call up and interview like you in the coming weeks and months? And yeah, is- there there are there are several. You know, there's not a lot, but there are several. Yeah. Rosa Delora from Connecticut, right? Been a huge advocate for a long time. Shelley Pingree, uh, Congresswoman from Maine, who is an, actually an organic farmer. Yeah, she's. I'm hoping to get her on the show in a couple of weeks. I've well, been I'm happy talking to talk to, her. to any of them about about you know, coming on your show. Um, Debbie Ooh. Stabenow in the Senate is a terrific advocate. She's from Michigan. Yep. So there, there's a handful of people that are doing it. But again, even throughout the presidential debate that I'm listening to very closely on both sides, um, you know, no one's no yep. one's really striking this kind of, it's almost like a laser beam. It's like, boom, if we do this, you're going to, you know, improve health, you're going to reduce health care costs you're, for right. the private sector. You're going to reduce the federal budget. And then you're going to free up money over time for investments that I think all of us want to make. But everyone's so squeezed right now economically, no one wants to pay more in taxes. So how do right. you how do you kind of thread the needle on this? And I really think it all comes together uh, at the dining room table. <laughs> I love the way you put that. Listen, we're going to talk a little bit more about lobbying later in the program, but I wanted to um, not miss the opportunity to bring up uh, the sort of Flint 
Michigan moment that is occurring in Ohio right now, and I know you've been quite outspoken about this. Um, tell us about what's happened in Sebring. Um, I know it's not your district, but still, you have been calling for the, you know, for the head to roll of the EPA at the very least. How do you feel like the governor has um, handled this this problem? And well, tell us a little bit about what it is. Very, very poorly. I mean, he's yeah. he's really disconnected, and, and I don't, I'm trying not to make this a political issue because it. it it obviously is, but I don't want to make it because he's running for president that I'm doing this just because it's some way to attack him because it's not about him. It's about these mm-hmm. these uh, men and women in Sebring. And basically what happened was we had a similar situation where um, there was lead in water in certain areas of Sebring, not from the water system necessarily, but from the, the piping that was going into homes. And the Ohio EPA, we just found out, you know, a week or so ago, the Ohio EPA knew about this as early as maybe August. Right. And then they went back and, and did some more testing, and they found out in late uh, September that they had that, that this was an issue. And they told the local person uh, in Sebring to, to notify the community. Well, they didn't. And so here's September, October. They said again, you need to notify them by November 29th. Now, why in God's name you would know about this in September or early October, just giving them the benefit of the doubt? Like I said, we think they knew in August. Right. And then you'd say, well, you got till the November 29th to tell them. You know, that's still eight weeks. Yeah. Like, what are you waiting for? And then finally, they didn't notify on November 29th. It goes into December. So turns out it doesn't go public until the end of January. And the Ohio EPA says, don't drink the water, and we knew about it way back when. So, um, you know, I said the head of the EPA has got to go. I mean, he's got to go. I mean, there's just no question that either you're completely incompetent or the culture of your organization is so passive that you're allowing people to drink lead-contaminated water and you're not telling them for weeks and weeks and months and months. That's that's appalling to me. Well, it's criminal. It's actually criminal. It is. I mean, you know, yeah. imagine if you had a kid, you know, if it was your yeah. kid. And that's what I tell everybody, you know, people say, well, take it easy. No, I'm not going to take it easy. Uh, you know, if that's my kid, then I would be livid. And, you know, I'm in charge of representing people in Ohio, and I'm going to treat their kid like they're my kid and react accordingly. That's right. Absolutely. Well, what I read um, today, because I was boning up a little bit on this in, in anticipation of our discussion, um, is that the actual, the, the water um, commissioner, I guess is the name, of uh, Mr. James Bates, um, what has actually been barred from the building, but evidently he was the guy who was supposed to be telling people and yet failed to do so and then evoked some uh, rule, non-existent rule about how federal procedures limited his ability to spread the word about this contaminated water i mean it's just it's an amazing story i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this up just by asking what if i may ask is the demographic of the sebring community it's a small little village in southern mahoning county so youngstown would be the big city and it's mm-hmm. in the southernmost part of that county it's right on the it's working its way down it, it actually is like appalachia ohio west virginia uh-huh. you know kind of tennessee it's in that appalachian area and uh, just a small, you know, small community, and on real right near the Pennsylvania border in eastern Ohio, and you know, just people trying to make ends meet, and you know, they they pay taxes and they want to trust their government. They want to trust people at places like the EPA to keep them safe, you know, and sure. uh, 
And I think they let them down in a big, big way. And I think you're seeing that kind of real distrust. I mean, it's, a, it's what comes first, too, the cart of the horse. So I'm semi-sympathetic. I mean, the fact that they knew does not excuse them. Right. But I am sympathetic that the Ohio EPA and other agencies like it that are charged with protecting consumers have really seen a huge cut in their budget in Ohio. It has been part of Governor Kasich's plan since he got in to really disinvest in local communities. So he's cut these agencies. He's cut the local government fund for there to be people on the ground working on issues like public health, water systems, and all the rest. These local communities are strapped. That doesn't excuse them because they did know, but the question is how many other communities are out there where there, there isn't proper testing getting done, or does the EPA know, but they, they really can't do anything about it, so they don't announce it? I mean, are we really in this position? And, you know, the, the scary part for me is that, you know, Sebring, Flint, Youngstown, Akron, Cleveland, yeah. Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Gary, Indiana, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, these kind of older Great Lake states all kind of came uh, came of age at the same time during the Industrial Revolution. Right. You know, a hundred years ago, they were building these systems, and it's just time to rebuild. Yeah, you know, it's just, that's just where we are in the history of our country. So we can't say let's ignore it. The government's the problem. Hey, who else is going to do it? You know, Donald Trump's not going to come in and personally build water lines and new water systems. This is something we have to do collectively. We've got to come together and say, hey, do we want to do it? No, we have to do it because the cost on the other end is so expensive. Look in Flint, Michigan, the cost of remediation, the cost of the health care issues. You've basically changed the trajectory of so many kids' lives because they now have lead poisoning, and we know what that does to your your ability for your brain to function properly. Um, So we're paying for this one way or the other, and I would rather pay and create jobs and put people to work to improve these systems and make sure people are safe rather than wait for disasters to keep happening all around the country and then pay for that project of cleaning the water system and all the rest and paying for the health care damage and having kids that aren't going to go out and be entrepreneurs or engineers or create jobs or be welders or plumbers or anything else because their their faculties have been so diminished that they end up on Medicaid. They end up on Social Security Indeed. and disability because of what we did to them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, speaking of the whole water situation, I know I'm sure you've been following carefully because you're also a heavily, uh, your state is a heavy ag state. Um, you've been watching the situation in Des Moines in terms of how, you know, the the Des Moines Water Works is suing the up county or the upriver uh, counties for agricultural pollution. And of course, Ohio has suffered from terrible agricultural pollution in uh, Lake Erie and the city of Toledo, you know, having had its water municipal water system compromised as well by that blue green algae bloom over the last couple of years. So let me ask you this. What would this be, I mean, you know, you're speaking about remediating these water systems um, across the whole sort of essentially industrial belt of the United States. And and is this something that the House Appropriations Committee um, would be in charge of? Or are the Republicans more likely to throw this back at the states and say, well, it's a state problem. You know, government is not the issue here. It's like something you guys have to fix. How do you see that playing out? Because, I mean, I thoroughly agree with you that these these are systems that should be addressed by government. And Yet we have a Republican Party that wants to essentially remove government from everything except for women's wombs. And uh, 
<laughs> As a side note. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like they don't want to pay for anything except for whether or not you're going to have an abortion or or use birth control. So, I mean, like, I don't know how they square that stuff. But do you think that the Republicans would get behind this? Um, on some level, because I, I mean, I do see this as a major federal issue, not something that each state should be, you know, directly addressing on a piecemeal basis. Yeah, you know, I would hope. I really would. I would hope. I, I'm I'm not optimistic about it because the narrative in Washington right now is everything's anti-government mm-hmm. and there's no kind of collective action that's being called for coming out of the Republican Party. Now, I will say, I know a lot of. Republican friends of mine who are very interested in doing something like this, but they're a little bit gun shy because there's a good constituency within their own party that, you know, will really shoot them down if they say, you know, they're for, you know, maybe uh, whether it's putting on a gas tax or trying to find some money to be able to, you know, build these systems out. And and so it's going to be very, very hard. Now we're going to push. I'm working with Dan Kildee, who's the congressman from Flint. Uh-huh. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way. We haven't been in, in D.C. for a couple of weeks. So we're going to go back tonight and really try to figure out what's the strategy here. Mm-hmm. And I told him as soon as it came out, I said, Dan, I'm, you know, really sorry what's going on in Flint. And the scary part is this is something that's a national issue. And it wasn't but a week or two later the thing popped in Sebring. Right. So, um, you know, we, we got to figure it out. And, again, it's like I'm, I'm kind of fatigued with, hearing the cost of everything without recognizing the value of anything, you know, all at the same time, they'll tell you exactly what it costs. But like I said, what's the value of these human lives? What's the value of, um, of lost intelligence? I mean, mean, and that's literally what's happening, right? It's intellectual capital that's being squandered by, you know, this very penny wise, pound foolish, uh, attitude towards, um, you know, maintaining and rebuilding structures, infrastructure yeah. in this country. What about the idea of, of um, you know, with Toledo uh, having their, you know, their algae bloom in Lake Erie and that being caused by so much uh, agriculture in the state? Um, do you think that Toledo will pursue, like if the Des Moines uh, lawsuit, if the waterworks prevail and they, they manage to sue and, and successfully prosecute uh, these upriver counties for agricultural pollution, do you see the city of Toledo following them? I don't know. I don't know what the you know what the attitude is up in Toledo, and you know I I can say I, the farmers in Ohio have been super cooperative. I mean, they're the the you know um, the levels of um, fertilizer and the levels of um, you know kind of manure or whatever mm-hmm. they're they're putting on their farms are what they're being told to put on there. You know, yeah. so they're, they're, they they tell us what to do is basically what the farmers are saying, because obviously this isn't working. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, whether we haven't exactly found out what the cause is, because there is some, there was a rumor out that there was this big, you know, kind of a cattle farm up in northwest Ohio that was producing a, a ton of uh, manure and and that was part of what was leaking into the river and the watershed and then in the Lake Erie, which was causing mm-hmm. uh, the high level of phosphorus and stuff was causing the algae bloom. So we're not sure. Uh, but Toledo may. I don't know what I don't know what their cause is. But again, this is a national problem. I mean, right. when you look at Great Lakes water, it's one of the few water sources that that we can really rely upon, and especially in the industrial Midwest. 
So we've got to have an overall plan. And that, again, really is what the Real Food Revolution was all about, is that we need an overall plan. How do we move these farmers to, you know, the the more, uh, you know, crops that are more produce? How do we, you know, we can still, I'm not an anti-meat guy, but clearly the industrial farming that's happening now is bad for the environment. How do we get back to more sustainable levels of farming and the crop rotation and right. and all the different sustainable methods that they have? And integrated farming systems, right, right. Yeah, because, I mean, like, having these big lagoons of manure is really the problem. You want to know, I'm writing a book about this right now, and just to give you a statistic that you can throw out there on the, you know, on the congressional floor, 86,200 pounds of shit per second is produced in this country's uh, overall livestock, industrial livestock system, okay? 86,000 pounds per second. Wow. Isn't that a staggering statistic? And we don't even have all of these CAFOs mapped. We don't even know that. But um, to move along quickly, because, I mean, I'm so in love with you right now, I can hardly control myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wondered if you had had a chance to read the unbelievably um, compelling white paper uh, that uh, was produced by Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, uh, Ricardo Salvador from Union of Concerned Scientists, and Olivier Deschuter, who was formerly at the FAO. Um, it's called Food Policy for the 21st Century, and it calls for really widespread reforms. And I wondered, um, first of all, if you'd had a chance to read it. And secondly, what do you think a food policy should actually say? I mean, should it be, I mean, yes, it should be like we're moving away from industrial meat production. We're moving away from, you know, these subsidies for corn and soy. Um, But what else would you call sort of like a food policy? Would you want to see that as a cabinet position? Yeah, no, I love the idea. I really, really think it's great because I think it will focus everyone's mind, you know, mm-hmm. as to how these are all connected. To me, those gentlemen um, have, have really hit the nail on the head and because they address the main problem. And I think the main problem is most Americans don't connect our food policy with our ag policy, right. with our health care policy. Right. And in really even with our education policy, you know, we, we are still operating in these industrial age silos, which is how the government really came of age in the United States through the mm-hmm. industrial age. We're going to have the, right. you know, Secretary of Transportation and the Secretary of Agriculture and the Secretary of Health and Secretary of Education. And, and that got very siloed. And so no one's really seeing the connection, you know, between all, all of them. And these guys with having somebody there to really coordinate all this. Um, could be a major, major factor in really shifting the trajectory of wh- how we look at this. And, and I think if you explain to people, like, you know, <laughs> come on, you're, you're, you know, you're driving, you're, you having diabetes when it's completely preventable. And there may be people out there that will get diabetes and it's not preventable. And right. we need to have an, a, enough resources available to be able to take care of those people. But we're not going to have resources available to take care of them if 90% of other people with diabetes are not doing anything to prevent it for themselves. So these guys tie tie the room together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Would you, can you imagine that um, one or both of the committees on which you sit, how how would they respond to the idea of of voting money for even just like developing a sort of framework for a quote unquote food policy? I mean, do you see Republicans, for instance, you know, coming along and making that connection as well? I mean, surely they understand that, you know, spending all this money, I mean, they don't even want Obama. Are we all supposed to die? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you just like the mind is blown. I mean, I don't care which side of the fence you're on. It's like some of this stuff is just so basic and obvious, a connection, you know, between bad food and bad health. Like yeah. you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that there is a connection and it needs to be dealt with. So I don't know. Do you see uh, Republicans in any way, shape or form um, starting to connect with these ideas like on the Agricultural Committee? Like I look at who's on the Agricultural Committee. It's a lot of Republicans and they're not voting down the corn and, you know, the the corn subsidies, for example. I mean, they turned them into crop insurance instead of subsidies. But you know what I'm saying? Like, they are very invested in status quo. And that's, I guess, that leads us to the point of talking about lobbying. Let's talk about lobbying. Let's do it. Yeah. So how, how, how does it work? Like, what are these guys? They come in, like the meat industry, I know they have a whole week in which like the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the American Meat Institute, you know, the Pork Council, blah, blah, blah. They all go to Washington together. Do they go to everybody's office and they say, vote this way on this bill? Is that what happens? Well, a lot of times it's the local, you know, farm organizations, whether it's the Farm Bureau or, um, you know, other, other organizations, the Soy Bean Association and those kind of people who, you know, really are benefiting from the status quo. And, you know, they're really, they're not bad people, but, you know, people operate in their own self-interest. And so that's why I think it's important. And then, of course, they donate money. And 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 right now, with the way the districts are, you have a lot of rural districts, and the urban districts are very consolidated, um, like in Ohio, you know, Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, mm-hmm. You know, are represented by two people, and all but all of the surrounding areas, mostly rural, um, are surrounded by you know Republican conservatives who will you know pretty much go in line and with with whatever the status quo is. That's why I think it's so important for us to build this alternative view this alternative approach and it doesn't mean we're going to cut the farmers out and it doesn't mean we need to blame the farmers the farmers are business people they're making a living they have families and mortgages and and capital investments and all the rest so here comes you know tim ryan and carrie and others saying hey you want to grow peaches because they're healthier and they're like yeah nice talking to you i got (laughs) you know i got a mortgage i got tractors i got trucks i got the so it's yeah. got to be more along the lines of we have this national problem, we're, we're very sick, um, and we now know that a lot of it's coming from food and highly processed food. So we know you're not the problem, but, you know, you, we all are. We're all part of the problem. Sure. So here's what we propose. If you take 100 acres or 200 of your 500 acres and you swap them over and you're going to do produce, you know, we'll give you a grant to convert over. We'll give you grants to, you know, because now you can't put stuff in a silo um, and let it sit there until right. the market's ready to, you know, give you a good price for it. That's right. You got fresh produce. So that's going to have to, we're going to have to create a different system for that. And they're going to need you know, trucks that are refrigerated, for yes. example, that they're going to have to make investments in that. We're going to have to create markets for them locally, which I think we can do with schools, universities, prisons that can immediately accept a lot of this fresh produce. They're yeah. going to need hoop houses, yeah. you know, to extend the growing season, especially in the north, obviously in the north, yeah. um, so that they can, you know, really grow this stuff 
uh, year round. And, and those are the kind of things that need to be done. But if we can tell the farmer, you're going to make the same amount of money next year and in five years that you're making now. We're not going to take anything from you. We just need you to convert. And let's sit down and have a conversation about what you need to convert over. Because we don't want it. We, you know, you're not the problem. Agriculture's, uh, you know, a staple in American society. Absolutely. You know, we're not we're not enemies. We just we need to figure this out, or there won't be any money for farm subsidies in ten years because half the country's going to have diabetes. And I think that's the kind of approach that, you know, whoever the next president is needs to really take, or if there's someone that would take this new position that, you know, Bittman and Pollan and these guys are talking about. You know, to me, that's the kind of approach. Not where it's adversarial, but it's like, how do we all sit down and do this together? Yeah, I'm with you 100%. In fact, I find the adversarial approach of the so-called progressive food movement uh, versus, um, you know, in my case, I especially study the livestock industry. Um, You know, it's so counterproductive. It's like you cannot expect these people to just stop doing it. You have to figure out a way to help them along so that if it's, you know, so if what you want is for there to be more room per animal in a confined area, um, or you want to phase out battery cages or whatever your particular interest is, you got to figure out a way to make it feasible for these guys. Um, right. Because nobody, you know, this all, doesn't all happen in a vacuum. It's like we asked for cheap meat, we got cheap meat, and now we're mad. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we're going to blame the people who got us cheap meat. Right. You know? I mean, right. it's like they figured it out and they did it. I mean, you know, and that was. The intentions at the time were good, right? Sure, absolutely. Cheap protein so everyone can get it so you didn't have to, you know, live in a country club uh, neighborhood to be able to get good meat that right. was fresh and healthy and all the rest. Yeah. And that system got away from us. So it did really the did, yeah. We were out to feed the world. Noble intentions for the United States. But here we are, we're not feeding the world, and we're getting sick. So yeah. uh, time to call an audible. Um, you know, actually, that leads me to ask you something which I don't think I put on the outline, but I might have. Um, and that is, you know, um, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. There are a lot of companies that are coming in, and the most notable example was, of course, uh, Shuang Hui, um, the Chinese company, which um, came in and bought Smithfield. And so they bought all the processing facilities, they bought a lot of um, hog farms, and they bought a lot of arable land. Um, that is used to grow corn and soy because of the vertical integration of the hog industry. And it it got me to thinking about, like, you know, are we ever going to say no to these companies, uh, either an American company that wants to sell to a foreign company or a foreign company that wants to come in and purchase large amounts of arable land? Because I'm thinking about it in terms of the future when, you know, food security becomes more of an issue globally because we're going to run out of water. Um, And so are we you know, really dealing in our best interests as a nation by selling off big chunks of land um, that could potentially be a source of food and water for an American population. But the way we're handling it now is we're just kind of giving it away to the highest bidder. Is there anything in, you know, is there anything going on in Congress? I mean, I know it's supposed to be examined by the judicial system. You know, the Department of Justice looks at these deals, but they seem to pass them all. So is anybody thinking about that long-term stuff, especially about the water issues? Yeah, I don't think so. Not with the land. That's you know, that's obviously very tricky because you get in the private property rights, which yeah. is you know something that uh, you know I don't think people would be too keen. I was down in Cuba a few months ago, and <laughs> a lot of Americans were down there wanting to invest. And the Cubans said, "Yeah, we'll give you 
uh, this land, and you know, if there's a national emergency, we're going to take it back off you. <laughs> right. And 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 so, like, okay, well, what's your definition of a nat- national national emergency? Right. They're like, well, we don't have one really. If we think it's you know, <laughs> but we'll so, figure. <laughs> so you know, you get into that where you know our system is so different. But I agree with you when it comes to the water. You know, obviously that is a uh, huge, you know, commodity and something essential for Americans. And so I know we've done things in the Great Lakes with the Great Lakes Compact that, you know, protect our water rights here. Uh-huh. And I think that ultimately that's that's the essential component. But I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about um, within our defense industry about the defense industrial base, meaning we need to have enough manufacturing in the United States to be able to supply our own military and build our own planes and tanks and satellites and all the rest. And if we lose that, you become dependent on, you know, foreign uh, suppliers that may be your adversary in a conflict. So I I get somewhat the same kind of uh, sense with this is, you know, if we run into global food issues, we would want to be able to make sure we're at least able to feed ourselves. Exactly. And I, I feel like nobody's minding the candy store. I really do. It's, I find it very frightening. It's like, to me, the most compelling issue of our time is protecting our arable land and especially our water supply. And I don't really see that going on. But um, let's, let's quickly segue. I know we're supposed to take a sponsor drop, but we're not going to. Um, let us segue quickly to the trade deals that we are negotiating, the TTP and the uh, – I mean, sorry, the TPP and the, and the TTIP. Um, like the meat industry, for example, is totally thrilled with these deals, but um, smaller producers and smaller farmers aren't necessarily. Um, and obviously they feel – you know, people are concerned that they're going to be undercut by cheaper prices, you know, for meat that's coming in from, say, Brazil, which has virtually – you know, basically no labor laws, no environmental protections, et cetera. Um, <laughs> you know, like, h- how is that stuff going to play out for the smaller, you know, for the smaller entities? I mean, obviously Cargill and Smithfield are going to make a fortune, but what about the other guys? Yeah, it's a real problem. I mean, we're seeing this consolidation, and we're seeing the little guy struggle to make it. And again, with our policies, I would hope that we could create incentives for these, you know, small, medium sustainable farmers to access the kind of subsidies to make ends meet for themselves because there's a real public benefit there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's essential that the, the animals are obviously treated better. They're healthier. The, the, if you look at the grass fed meat, for example, it has higher levels of certain vitamins and minerals yes. than, than the corn fed uh, and you know many of these these cows most <laughs> these cows aren't supposed to be uh eating uh you know they're not supposed they're to eating. eat corn at all no. <laughs> they're supposed to be eating grass and um and they're not so there's that that has the whole um you know ripple effect of then they need antibiotics and and now we have high levels of uh antibiotics and a lot of our chicken and a lot of the other things uh pulled right. through, so on and so forth so anyway um yeah, I think I think it's a real issue, but it's got to again be in that farm policy. And this is where people say, you know, or I try to say to people that, you know, at the end of the day, I know you don't want to get involved in politics, but this all comes down to what are the federal policies. Yeah. And you can't just say I'm going to go to Whole Foods and hope things change. If you want to shift for your kids, for your grandkids, you know, yeah, you, you have to shift the policies, you have to shift the subsidies, and though you may not like politics, you know, you better get into the game or the status quo is going to continue to, um, you know, rear its ugly head. And that means 
bad things for the environment, and that means bad things for the food system. Yeah, I agree. Well, what about like in like you? I'm assuming that you are privy to you know the negotiations here for these for these trade agreements. I was curious if like any you know are there any price protections built in, for example, or are there any you know environment? And I guess I'm looking for language that would sort of level the playing field. Um, for American farmers, I mean, we feed our animals corn, but like in Brazil, they're and in Australia, they those those cattle, for example, are almost exclusively fed grass because they've got the land, um, but they grow the corn and soy for other countries to buy, like the Chinese. Right. <laughs> you know, but they, I mean, so they they have like this very cheap available supply of feed. American farmers maybe not necessarily having the same opportunities or the same, um, you know, uh, yeah, they don't have the same opportunities. So, so how, I just wonder, like, how would how has the, have the negotiations um, evolved to kind of level those playing fields between countries if we're going to be, you know, doing all this this you know trade with uh, Europe or with the you know with the Chinese, et cetera? Like, what is what's how's that going to play out? I know the European farmers are freaking out about TTIP. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, part of it, you know, these are all these are all negotiations, and what what happened with country of origin labeling yeah. uh, totally got kneecapped because you know of the the trade agreements and the World Trade Organization okay. saying that we couldn't label the country of origin, and there was a big fine hanging over the head of the United States, and it took years and years and years for us to even get that in there in those yeah. six, those seven, oh eight when we were able to do it, spearheaded by. Rosa Delora and others yep. who were really fighting for that, and and so they kneecapped us on that. So the concern is if you do put these kind of um, barriers up for us to get meat from certain countries and hoops for them to jump through, that the World Trade Organization then comes in and says, "Hey, we know that you're trying to protect your consumers, but that you're not allowed to do that." And to me, that's what's really scary about these trade agreements. Why well, I've been ag- I've been against them is because they are just usurping the power of the United States. I think they're bad economics in a lot of ways, too. But at the same time, they're not allowing us to protect our own consumers from meat, or at least not even saying we're going to protect you. We're just going to let you know what country it's coming from. Right. Um, I think that is a really terrible thing. And again, if you're against this and you don't vote and you don't participate in the process and you don't know who your congressman is or how they vote on food policy issues then you know you you might as well get in bed with the bad guys because you're 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 making it easier for them to get their way cuz no one's calling their local congressman saying hey i have a problem with this right. there's a great organization called food policy action they yes. they score your member of congress on how they vote on food issues yeah. and it's very easy very you know consumer friendly you can find out who your member of congress is you can find out how they vote um, and and you, you need to get engaged because that way you can go to your member of Congress and say, hey, how are you voting on TPP, right. which is the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Trade Agreement? How are you voting on the European Trade Agreement? How, how does my, my guy or my woman stand on food issues and how they vote on the farm bill? I mean, they'll lay it out for you, and, you know, and then you can organize your own folks in your congressional district. And there's a lot of people out there that, that, that are interested in this stuff. You look at all the urban urban ag people. Yep. You look at the people that are in the food desert. You look at the school lunch people that are for healthy school lunch. You look at farmers markets. You look at your organic farmers, your sustainable farmers that could be in your community. And then you just look at moms and dads who are concerned with what their kids are eating. There's a coalition there waiting to be built, but you can't sit on your fanny. You got to get up and get right. moving.
Right, right. I'm actually interviewing um, Claire Benjamin uh, Mattia, the head of the, you know the, the co-founder of Food Policy Action, in a couple of weeks. I'm excited about that because oh, she's a rock star. I she's really love I love yeah. this organization. I think they're amazing. Um, I uh, for, just for a second, I want to go back to lobbying because when you talk about constituents, con- you know, con- contacted their local representatives, um, you know, if you're not uh, funneling money into them as a sort of organization, like how could consumers really hope to compete with? Um, you know, large uh, corporations who are, you know, basically supporting campaigns for maintaining the status quo. I think that is, you know, really one of the the leading questions of our time, given the, you know, the whole sort of, um, you know, Citizens United climate in which uh, politics are, you know, functioning nowadays. And I, I really see a big problem with, um, with that in the sense of like, yeah, you can, you know, I mean, I think people feel that they can call and write letters to their heart's content, but money talks, you know what I mean? That's, that's well, very scary to me. money does talk, and there's no doubt about it. And the big policy change I think we need is we need campaign finance reform, and yes, I sir. think we need publicly financed campaigns so that all this big money is out of the process and we can just let you know, the democracy piece work the way it should work, and people can get their views out without... That's just grotesque, you know, the amount of money that gets spent and the amount of money that that guys like me and women like me, you know, uh, in in political jobs got to spend fundraising. Yeah. That that you're not spend legislating, you're not spend meeting your constituents, you're on a phone begging people for money. Yeah. And, you know, we all do it because that's the game, but it sucks, you know, and it's oh. like it's not the best use of our time, and it's not really what we get hired to do. And I think, again, but if you're not in the game pushing that piece of legislation to your member of Congress, right. you know, it's not going to get done. So you got to have campaign finance re- reform. And I will say, even in the midst of this crazy system, votes still matter. And members of Congress still listen to their constituents because they want to get reelected. Yeah. And so if you get organized, you get hooked up with food policy action, you listen to your podcast, you listen to what I'm saying. Yeah. Of course, you go out and you buy Real Food Revolution, Amazon.com. <laughs> uh, but you, you get on yourself, my Kindle you know, right get now. Your, <laughs> get yourself get yourself boned up on these issues yeah. and and start getting organized in your congressional district and and let your voice be heard because yeah. there's no other way to do it. And even with all this money in a congressional district, you can influence with a few hundred very kind of vocal people and petition signed by a thousand or two people, you will get your member of Congress's attention. They will pay attention to you. And I would guess more often than not, they will vote the way you want them to vote. Well, that's so encouraging. I'm really happy to hear you say that. Um, I have one more question and then I will let you go. But um, it's, it's kind of a big one. Um, first of all, I'm sure you saw Elizabeth Warren's op-ed a couple days ago in the Times, right? I did um, not. Oh, well, um, basically she was saying that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that corporations, whatever the industry, um, seem to be able to run roughshod over labor laws, antitrust laws, any form of regulation um, without being penalized. And, of course, she was talking about the financial industry, you know, that not a single one of those jack and apes went to jail for what they did in the meltdown. Um, right. But, you know, if if the if a Democrat wins the next presidential election, um, you know, what measures 
could you imagine supporting that would help to enforce uh, corporate accountability, no matter what the, the industry, whether it's financial, whether it's the agricultural industry, whether it's energy, where, you know, your your colleague, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse in the Senate um, is like, you know, he's been, I'm sure, I, I hope you've seen some of his videos, if not actually seen himself. He gives a 20 minute speech every week that you guys are in session about fossil fuels and global warming. Have you have you seen any of his things? I've heard about them. Oh my god. Them. Congressman Ryan, they are so worth watching. <laughs> He's got every single one of them on his website and they are brilliant and he addresses a different aspect of climate change in each and every one and he's given something like 130 of them now like going back like three years it's like amazing wow. he's amazing wow. anyway he's my local i mean i'm a new yorker but i'm from rhode island so he's my senator and uh, so I, i'm a big fan of his but what do you think like how can how can a democratic legislature you know start to push for some more you know just even using the laws that exist like the sherman act against antitrust you know for antitrust like why you know, when, how can we move that forward again, you know, as part of the voting constituency? And then also what, what would your, you know, what would your colleagues in Congress say about that? Well, it'd be very tough now. I mean, we have people that are actually trying to repeal Dodd-Frank, which was the big financial regulation after the meltdown. Um, You know, and I think there's a lot of people that don't think it went far enough. I'd probably be one of them. And some went too far when it, it over kind of overstepped a little bit with some of the smaller um, community banks that weren't really part of the problem, but they've sure. gotten caught up in the regulations for the big banks, and that's a really expensive cost when you're you're a smaller community bank. So I think there there's a reason to get in there and start fixing some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, a lot of these banks are right back where they were. Oh yeah, you know, they're they're bigger than they were before the crash, and I just think that's that's a really scary um, proposition. I, I quite frankly think that Hillary Clinton has a a really good plan to go back and and kind of go back and get into the, the guts of this thing and mm-hmm. and regulate it and it's you know Paul Krugman who's a major Love you know, lib- liberal economist um, who says she has the best plan even better than Bernie Sanders so you know I think who you elect matters and I keep getting back to this but it like who you vote for matters and and right now there's a Republican held House there's a Republican held Senate. You know, the president is obviously Democratic. And, you know, it's not to get political, but it's like even even the current state of the Republican Party, you know, they used to be for building stuff. You know, Abraham Lincoln built the Intercontinental Railroad. Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican, built the Panama Canal. Eisenhower, who was a Republican, built the Interstate Highway. You know, the traditional Republican used to be for building infrastructure in the United States because it was good for the country. Right. They also were for, we were all for free markets, but they were also for regulated markets to make sure that we didn't have these crashes. Right. And that changed, you know, we had the savings and loan bailouts in yep. the 80s. We see all these bubbles coming now. Then we had the collapse, you know, last uh, couple years back because we're not regulating the market. So again, you know, whether you're talking about food or just basic uh, regulations, or whether it's the EPA in places like Sebring or Flint, Michigan, or water people who are involved with protecting uh, the consumer, or what kind of beef or meat or baby food or stuff or fish is coming in from places like China that are completely contaminated and we're feeding it to our citizens. You know, a lot of this tilapia and stuff you get from China, it's, it's 
coming out of a cesspool. I yeah, mean, I, I, I don't mean, touch it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't either. And um, I, one of the first dates I had with my wife, she was going to cook dinner for all our family, and, and uh, you know, it was pretty hectic. She says, what kind of fish should I get? I said, we well, can get anything, but don't get tilapia if it's, it's from China. <laughs> So she goes on and goes shopping, and it was hectic, and there were a bunch of people there. She comes back with two tray full of tilapia from China. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's like, all I remembered was tilapia. <laughs> <laughs> so we all had a nice, healthy glow that night after yeah. we ate all that fish. <laughs> well, Congressman, on that note, we must say goodbye. I hope you will join me again um, during the course of this political season. I, I can't tell you what a breath of fresh air you are. I just am so encouraged uh, to hear a common sense guy talk about basic issues that face our country going forward. And I, I appreciate your service. And I thank you so much for joining me and my listeners today. And um, we will all be tweeting madly about you. And, um, you know, I wish you the best of luck and and you know let's hope the best man wins uh come november thanks yep. again well we're all on the same team here and i'm really trying to build out the whole movement you know so to God the extent him. uh you and your guests want to be a part of that you know let's let's stay connected oh i'd love that absolutely i would totally love that and i'll send you a copy of my book when it comes out <laughs> all right okay i'll buy it i'll buy it <laughs> even better <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you so much congressman so Alrighty. long now Bye-bye. And thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, as always. Uh, I appreciate um, their support, which has been long-lived on this station. They were one of our, our earliest and biggest supporters. Uh, they have never wavered in our mission or theirs. And I want to just say thank you so much uh, to Chris Howell, the founder of the winery and, uh, and our constant patron. And thanks to my engineer, Jack. And we have more great political stuff coming up in the coming weeks, so be sure to stay tuned. It's an exciting election year season for what does and kill you so keep at it folks and don't forget to vote thanks for listening thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.